My name is Josh Tovey. I'm the youth pastor here at Southbridge and uh, just excited to be together with you this morning. Um, how many of you are getting ready for Christmas season? Anybody? All right. Jed, love, Jed and Jason love Christmas time. I think they start the Christmas process in October. Um, how many of you wait till start the Christmas stuff after Thanksgiving? Raise your hands. Okay. All right. It's <laughs> really good. <laughs> All right. Well, I, this is one of my favorite times of the year. I love Thanksgiving. I love just what that brings to the Christmas season. And, and then Christmas Day comes and it's all over. Like Christmas Day is kind of like sometimes a depressing day. I feel like that season is through. Um, how many of you are planners? Anyone here confess that you're a big time planner? Like you have charts and systems for for everything in your life. Um, we have some people like that on our staff and uh, that are just big time planners. I'm not that. Um, but what's true for all of us is that we all have a plan to some degree. Would that be fair? That we plan something, right? It may not be as detailed and as uh, built up as other people's plans and systems. But um, I, uh, there was a time that I have to tell, well, first of all, I have to tell you a story. And the story is crazy. Is it okay if I tell you a crazy story? Like literally like the story is just crazy. Like it doesn't make any logical sense, the story. And uh, I would say that I thought this would be something I could never ever see with my own eyes. All right, almost an unbelievable kind of story. How many of you have ever pulled your car into a parking garage before? Anyone ever done that? I'm gonna put a picture of it up on the screen for you just so we're all on the same page. This is not the garage that I was parking in, but it's the same idea, all right? Steph and I, my wife, were on our way to the hospital for some of her appointments with her cancer-related stuff. And uh, we've been to this hospital a ton of times, and I never once have seen anything like this, all right? We pulled, our plan was to pull into the parking garage. We're going to park our car, walk 20 minutes to the hospital because it's huge to get what we need to get for her appointments. But on this specific day, there was a uh, Lexus SUV in front of me, and the, this woman driving it pulled up to the gate and realized that the gate wasn't going to open unless she had a ticket, right? So she gets out of her car, and walks back to the ticket machine. Now, this is the thing you need to understand, is that at the ticket machine, they're just like this one you can kind of see. There's a concrete post to protect the machine on one side, but the one that hospital that we went to had a concrete post on the other side of the machine as well, okay? So it's concrete post, ticket machine, concrete post, about 20 feet, and then the gate. So because the gate didn't open, she got out of her car, she opens up her door, keeps her door open, walks back to get her ticket, thinks that I'm just going to get this ticket, I'm going to continue with my plan. But the problem is she didn't put her car in park. What makes the story worse, and this is where it starts to get really crazy, is that she didn't put it in drive either. She put it in reverse. So, (laughs) the suspense. So what happened was her door's open, remember? So now her car's coming back at her. Her door hits the first concrete barrier to protect the ticket machine and bends her Lexus SUV door back over the front of her wheel. And she didn't see any of that. I'm looking at it. I'm like, Steph, look at this. Are you, are you watching this? She gets her ticket. She turns around, starts to scream because she's startled that her car is coming at her. She falls over and her car ends up on top of her. So just a quick survey of the room. How many of you have ever driven your car on top of you with no one else in the driver's seat? No one's going to own that. So I'm blown away by what I'm seeing, right? 
And she starts screaming at the top of her lungs, get the car off me, get this car off me. And so I quickly get out of my car and I jump into her car at another 160 pounds. And I put the car in drive and I drive her car off of her. What's amazing about the story is that she literally just walked away from it. I couldn't believe it. But when I got in the car, I'm like, heated seats, nice leather, nice GPS. This is, this is, this is a nice car. You know, I drove the car off her, right? And got, got that extra weight off her. Well, our big idea for this morning is this, is that um, God's plan is always best. Now, she had a horrible plan, or her plan wasn't the best plan. And I'm actually glad I got to witness it. It's kind of a fun story because she walked away okay, okay? But God's plan is always best. Well, what is God's plan? I believe this, that God's plan is that he's going to get the glory and it's going to result in our good. Right, when God created the world, right, he put Adam and Eve in the garden as his creation, and his plan was simply this, that my creation is going to live in a way that is going to glorify him. Meaning this, that his creation is going to do the very thing that they were created to do. And so Adam and Eve were put in the garden to honor God, to glorify God, to carry out the role that God has called them to, and what well, you know the story, right? They get tempted in Genesis chapter 3. They're tempted to do their plan or God's plan. And they choose to do their own plan. Adam was proposed with the idea that you want to be the creator or do you want to be creation? He's like, well, I'd rather be the creator. So he chooses the sinful path. And Satan thinks that he's got God's plan all off track. It's just a mess now. But what I love in Genesis chapter 3 is God tells Satan the next plan. Like, this is the plan. Like, my plan, Satan, is going to continue to move forward. Satan, I'm going to continue to get the glory. That's never going to change. And so in Genesis chapter 3, God tells Satan this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we learn about the he. The he in the text is Jesus. So Jesus shall bruise your head, Satan. The NIV says crush, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we learn three things about our Messiah in this text, about God's plan. The first is this, is that the Messiah must come from a woman. The offspring of a woman, it says. And the reality is, we need Jesus as our Savior to be the God-man, don't we? He's got to be able to relate with us in every way. And so Jesus, being from the offspring of a woman, is the Messiah. Now, the second thing we learn is that the Messiah must suffer. If you notice at the end of the verse, it said that uh, Satan will bruise his heel. So Jesus is going to come and he's going to suffer. The third thing we learn is that Jesus is going to conquer. The Messiah must conquer. He's going to come and he's going to crush Satan's head. So God tells Satan the plan. Here's the plan. Your plan is done, Satan, because I'm going to win because my plan is a plan that's going to bring me glory. And if you've uh, been here at all, we've been going through uh, the book of Acts for a while. All right, and we've, we've been talking a lot about this movement that's taken place. The movement is based off, though, a specific moment in time. That movement is based off the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The best way to describe it is it's the most important moment in the history of the, of the world. Right? That Jesus died and that he rose. And in his death and resurrection, he defeated the very thing that dominates our life. It's the idea of God saying, I'm going to send my son into my very own creation to redeem it from its own bad plan. That's exactly what our God does. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we, we see this. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, God changes lives for his glory and our good. And if you're here this morning, you understand, if you're a believer in Jesus, that you're here because God has transformed your heart and transformed your life. Right, that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a game changer for you and it changed everything about you. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we learn that God gives us a role in his plan and the role was a what? To be a what? Said witness. To be a witness. Well, what's a witness? A witness is someone who's experienced life change through Jesus and then lives life by glorifying God by making him known. Right, we live life to glorify God by making him known. And I want to break this down for us because I believe there's two words that help us understand what it means to be a witness for God's glory. The first one is this. If I'm a witness for Jesus, I am declaring his greatness. Constantly talking about his amazing work. Constantly talking about how amazing my Savior is. That's a role. That's part of God's plan for your life if you've experienced life change through him. The second word that comes to my mind is the word display. The idea that you will display his graciousness. So being a witness is declaring God's greatness and displaying God's graciousness. Well, what does it look like to display his graciousness? I simply think it means this, that I'm taking his invisible attributes and I'm making them visible. So God's kindness, his grace, his mercy, his love, his compassion— All those things, what am I doing? I'm displaying them in the spheres of influence that God has placed me in because that's God's plan, that I declare him and I display him. Now, maybe you've heard the word or the phrase, uh, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. Anyone heard that phrase before? Dr. Ed Stetzer, who's a professor and pastor, says this. He says, preach the gospel always when necessary, use words. It's like saying, feed the hungry when necessary, use food. Right? The reality is that we have to use words. We have to constantly talk about the greatness of our Savior. So it can't be just displaying, although it must include displaying. It can't be just declaring, although it must include declaring. It's got to be both of these things combined. In January, Steph and I were in Seattle. We were there for just uh, a few days, and uh, she was doing some shopping. If you've been downtown Seattle, it's kind of a cool city. And I was standing outside in January with a light jacket on, watching these people on the, in the streets, standing on buckets with big signs telling everybody they're going to hell. And I'm watching them for about 10, 15 minutes. And a guy would get up on a bucket, have a megaphone, kind of yell at everybody that they're going to hell. He would step off, hand the megaphone to his buddy. He would get up on the bucket, yell at everybody. And so when, the guy, when they made the transition, I went up to him and I said, what's your plan here? Like, what are you trying to do? Well, we want people to come to know Jesus. Well, let me, just as all of of us together this morning, let's evaluate that kind of thinking. Were they declaring anything about God's greatness? You're just all going to hell. Were Were they displaying anything about God's graciousness there? No, they weren't, right? So it has to be more than that. It has to be being, um, displaying and demonstrating the greatness of our Savior. And so remember our big idea that God's plan is always best. Save your Bibles. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16 this morning. Acts chapter 16. We're going to pick it up in verses, we're going to be in verses 6 through 10. Talking about what is God's plan. Understand that God's plan is always best. That God's plan started in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. It's fulfilled at the cross of Christ. And now we have a role in that movement, okay? And we see in verse 6 of Acts chapter 16, it says, And they went through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, 
having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so we see multiple things taking place here. First of all, we have a group of people that says, and they went. Right? The they is Paul, it's Silas, and last week we learned about Timothy joining them. Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. All right, we knew that, we learned that he joined the, the ministry with Paul and Silas to go forth to exalt Jesus so people could come to know the beauty of the gospel. Now, it's important for us to understand how is it that Paul, for example, let's talk about him specifically, is in a position where he can obey the Spirit, where the Spirit communicates to him and he says, okay, I'm not going to do what the Spirit wants or I'm going to do what the Spirit wants. So we have to understand a little bit about um, Paul's conversion story. What was Paul's name before he came to know Jesus? Saul, right? His name was Saul. And in Acts chapter 8, we learn a lot about Saul. He was a crazy accomplished person. He was very zealous and passionate about religion, specifically the religion of Judaism, right? And so because of that, his passion led him to do some crazy things. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, we learn that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we have this really passionate guy who's passionate about what he thinks is right. And he's going in a way to demonstrate his passion by throwing the people that are not agreeing with him into prison. Doesn't matter if it's a man, woman, child. Doesn't matter. He's throwing everyone in prison because he believes that he is right and he believes that they are wrong. You see, he thought, in his mind, he's going to do things so that God will be pleased with him. So he's like, if these people aren't for what my God thinks, then I'm going to get rid of them. The reality is his view was a, a view of religion. So there's a big difference between religion and the gospel. Religion is all about what you can do for God, where the gospel is all about what Jesus has accomplished for you. You see, in religion, God is a taker demanding that we do something. But in the gospel, God is a giver who gives us Jesus. And so for Paul, he didn't understand this analogy and his passion drove him to get rid of people who were followers of Jesus. And at one point, he got permission from Jerusalem to travel all the way to Damascus, which was 135 miles, a six-day journey, so he could throw more people in prison. And it's on that journey that a light from heaven comes down, and we see in the text in Acts chapter 9, Saul falling to his face, and a voice from heaven coming out saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you? He said, and the voice from heaven says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, it's in that moment that God says, I have a plan for this man. His passion is unmatched, right? I have a plan for him, and my plan is to reveal myself to him. And the reality is, when Jesus reveals himself to us, nothing else matters. Everything changes in that moment. Because when Jesus reveals himself to you, you realize that you are an incredible sinner in need of an incredible Savior to do an incredible thing. And that's what Jesus does. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 18, we get a picture of Saul, a little bit more about his conversion, is that it says like something like scales fall from his eyes, the idea of his spiritual blindness. That he is spiritually blind, and that is being removed, and he's getting a clear picture of Jesus. And we get a clear picture of Jesus, we get a clear picture of ourselves, don't we? And so a lot of people view Paul as, or Saul as kind of a punk. Like he's a big jerk. I, I view a big burly man who's really strong and wants to throw people around. Right? But he hates people. He seems to be mean, mad at people all the time. It's like, man, I'm glad I'm not like him. 
But see, the reality in Saul's conversion, we learn a lot about ourselves because we're spiritually blind as well. In Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, verse 9, it says this. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You see, back in verse 9, we learned two things about our heart. The first is this, is that every single person in here, every single person on the planet, the first thing we learn is this, is that our heart is deceitful. What does that mean? It means this, that I lie to myself. I don't need the devil to tempt me. I don't need anyone to tempt me. I got my own heart. My own heart wants me to do my own plan. Isn't that crazy? It, it, it pressures me to do not what God wants, but what I want to do. The second thing we learn is that our heart is desperately sick. That literally means this, that your heart is rotten. It is incurable. And so we say this, who can understand it? I can't because I lie to myself. My heart is broken. It's desperately sick. It's incurable. God's like, no, no, no. I get it. I get who you are. I'm the one who can relate to you. I'm the one who can save you because his performance for us is the game changer. And so I hope you realize that it is only in the gospel that you get the verdict before the performance. That Jesus has made a decision about you. That he loves you so much that God sent his own son to die in your place for your sin so that you could then come to know him. So back to Acts chapter 16, knowing a little bit more about Paul and his story. He's now in a position where he's been forbidden by the Holy Spirit in verse 6 to speak the word in Asia. What I love about Paul is he's crazy hungry to make Jesus famous. Right? He's in a position where he wants to make much of Jesus, where he's willing to go anywhere for the sake of the gospel. Remember, before I know Jesus, he was willing to go anywhere to throw someone in prison. He was willing to go anywhere so that the gospel would suffer and that people who knew Jesus would be off this planet. He was ready to do that. But now he's in a place where he's ready to go anywhere so that people will know Jesus. So his passion totally shifted. He went, he went from being a passionate persecutor to a passionate proclaimer of the gospel all in a single moment. And it's all based on the life change that he's experienced. And so what is God's plan? Well, that God's plan is always best. Here's, here's our first point. It's this, is that God says no because he's saying yes. God says no because he is saying yes. Right, the Spirit forbids them to go into Asia. Now, Asia here is not Asia the continent. It's, it's uh, Asia Minor. It's where current Turkey would be. So Paul's like, I want to take the gospel over to this place. And the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not taking my gospel there. And it's not that God didn't want the gospel to go there because the gospel does go there. It's that God had a different plan. So then he tried to go, I'm going to go to Bithynia. I'm going to take the gospel there. And it says the Spirit of Jesus in verse 7 said, no, no, I don't want, I don't want it to go there yet. It's not going to go there right now in this moment. Refer back to Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember God told Adam, Adam, you can eat of any tree in the whole garden, but there's this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that you must not eat of. It's a no when it comes to eating of this tree, Adam. But Adam, everything else is a yes. Think about that. Think about Adam's position. And so he was tempted. Do you want to do God's agenda or do you want to do your own agenda? I believe that the Bible gives us a lot of no's. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, we learn this. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever's earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desires. It goes on to talk about anger, rage, malice, a lot of different things, but it tells us put it to death, meaning kill it, take it out by the root and get rid of it. So God's saying these things are a no. If you've experienced life change through Jesus, this is a no. 
And is it because God's being a big jerk and God doesn't want us to have fun? And is, is that what, man, God, you're taking all the fun out of my life. That's not what God's doing. It's because God is saying no because he's saying yes to something else. In verse 12, he says this, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. So he's saying no to doing these things because I have a better plan that is for my glory and it results in your good. And it tells us in verse 12, do this. It's a yes to wear the things of Jesus. It's a yes to doing what it is that he created you to do. It's a yes. And the battle that we face so often is that God says no a million times sometimes before he says yes. And in the moment of when he says no to us, what is our response? Typically what happens is we become stagnant in our walks with God. That simply means this, that we become motionless. We become very stationary in what God is doing. And we fail to remember that when I do God's plan, it's actually good for me. And I get frustrated with God. I get angry with God because God didn't choose my plan. The reality is God says no to us because most of the time, it's probably a plan that's going to result in my glory, not his. And God's not okay with that because when we get the glory, it's ultimately not even for our own good. And God wants it to be good for you. So he's saying this, I am the decider of the plan. I decide the plan. Right? You're carrying out my plan as my witnesses. So I want you to go forth proclaiming the gospel, doing what I've called you to do, to demonstrate, to declare, to display the greatness and graciousness of Jesus. But it's my plan. I'm the decider of it. And typically when we come to God, we pursue God because we want something instead of understanding that we should pursue him because we want him. See the difference? We desire him in an intimate and personal way. And so the reality is if we're not moving forward in our walks with Jesus because we're stagnant, we're actually moving away from Jesus. And I'm not talking about losing our salvation. I don't believe we lose our salvation because me being saved is not based on me. It's based on Jesus. So God are, God's already decided about Josh Tovey if he's going to be saved or not. But what happens is God, through the cross of Christ, puts me in a position where I am saved. And I'm now in a position of righteousness where I can now practice life in light of my position with Jesus. And if I become stagnant, my practice, my daily communication, communion with the Father is, is, is not good if I'm stagnant. Because if I'm not moving, pressing into him, I am actually moving away from him. And to be honest, I believe that this life takes constant faith in God. Would you agree with that? That every single day I need to hear the gospel. Every single day the message that Josh Tobin needs to hear is this, is that I am saved not by what I do, but by what Jesus has done. That's the message that I need to hear every single day. I can never, ever forget that. And so when I think about uh, Acts chapter 16, this is ultimately a text about God's will. Do you want to do your will or do you want to do God's will? And a lot of us will wonder, well, what is God's will for my life? I want you to understand something, that God's will for your life is that he's Lord over every part of it. So you're waiting to know what God's will is. God's like, submit everything to me. And what's popular in our culture is to make Jesus our Savior, but not our Lord. The problem with that is the Bible. Right? That God has saved you so he can be Lord over your life. Where we submit everything over to him. And so what happens is we find ourselves in a position where we're becoming stagnant. Where we're actually not, we're actually growing away from Jesus because we're not pressing into him. And I find myself in a position when God says no, I have to ask this question. Then do I trust him or am I going to doubt him? I trust him when I understand that I've submitted everything to him. I doubt him when I realize that, hey, I want to be the decider of the plan, not God. I don't want God to decide. I want to decide because we forget that God is the source of all things good. 
right? He's the determining source for what is good. We'll take a look at what Paul does. Does Paul get stagnant? Let's take a look. Verse 8. It says, so passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. So God says no to two places. What does Paul do? He keeps moving. He's not staying still. He's not staying stagnant. He's pursuing whatever it is that he thinks God wants him to do. Okay, so it's a no here to witness. It's a no here to witness. Okay, let's try over here. And if God says no, it goes somewhere else. But if if he says yes, we'll be ready. Right, always moving forth, ready to do whatever it is that God has called them to do. What we don't know in Acts chapter 16 is how is it that the Spirit told them no? Is that something that he impressed on his heart? It could have been through the three of them deciding, hey, this is God's plan that we don't go to these places. We really don't know. But we know this. When we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Spirit comes in me immediately. And I, cannot, I can now live a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life. The issue that we face is, is if I become stagnant in my walk with Jesus, where I'm not pressing into him, but I'm staying motionless or stationary, I'm actually moving away from God, and where that leads us to a place of being spiritually lazy. Which, how many of you would agree that if I'm being spiritually lazy, that's affecting my witness for God, isn't it? It affects God's plan. Well, what do I mean by that? The reality is some of you are in a place where you've had the same job for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and you've led a lot of people to Jesus. You've been in that workplace de- uh, demonstrating, declaring God's greatness and displaying God's graciousness, making his invisible attributes visible. But yeah, others of you have had the same job for the same amount of time and have done nothing. How is that when it comes to engaging in the, in, the, in the mission? What does that look like in coming, engaging to be a witness of Jesus? Because if you've experienced the greatness and graciousness of Jesus, it makes no sense for us to keep it quiet to ourselves, does it? See, God's called us. You want to know what God's will is? Is that you're an effective witness. God's will is, is that he's Lord over every part of your life. God's will is, is that you will press into him at, during all things. See, we, we know what God's will is, but we don't always like what he has to say about it. But for us not to be an effective witness doesn't make any logical sense. So you can go over to your neighbor's house and you can talk about the game. You can talk about the accomplishments of your kids, your job. All those things are really good things to talk about. That's totally great. But the truth is is that you were once a sinner then you embraced the beauty of the cross of Christ and God is calling you to be a witness for his name, to declare about his greatness and display his graciousness. So how is that going? Because that's God's will for you right now. If you're a believer in Jesus, to do these very things. We can't go to that book of Acts and man say, man, these guys are really cool. They get to do what God's plan is. No, God's plan is the same for you. We're taking it to the ends of the earth, aren't we? Isn't that what God's plan is? I believe that here at Southbridge, we love people really well. I believe that's something that we're really good at. We love people really well. But here's my question, because I don't know the answer, is what, are we, what does it look like when we leave this place of being together as a family? Are we all being an effective witness in our spheres of influence? Or are we doing our own thing? Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary, says this. He says, the gospel requires articulation. It requires words. Whatever you're doing when you're not using words, you're not preaching the gospel. So for me to be in a place where it's like, I'm just going to love these people really well. And so you've been loving them for 10 years, but you never once declared about God's greatness. That's a misstep. That's a disconnection. All right, from what God has called us to do. And here at Southbridge, we've asked you to engage in the mission of God by coming up with one person in your life that you can demonstrate the beauty of the cross to. Right? One person. We've asked you to come up with one. So who's your one? 
In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 3, we learn uh, an amazing, it's an amazing text to me because it tells us who we are without God, then who we are with God, and then what God's plan is. Take a look at it with me. It says, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So here's the reality. God takes you from being a sinner to being a saint. He takes you from being being a, a slave to sin to being a son and daughter of his. And then he plants you as oaks of righteousness wherever he, is, wherever he wants to plant you so that you will be an influence to those that you know in that community so that he may be what? Glorified. So God has a plan. I'm going to save my own creation. I'm going I'm to instill in them my righteousness and then they're going to be strong oaks of righteousness wherever they are as these big strong trees that are going to demonstrate the beauty of who I am. I want you to know that my one is, uh, is my neighbor. All right, my neighbor's a really nice guy. He lives with his fiance and they're gonna get married a year from October and we get our dogs together in the backyards and we've had him over for dinner and he knows I work for Southbridge Fellowship. He knows that we love Jesus. He knows that when students come over, we're probably having a Bible study, right? He just knows. And so we get to talk about these things. We talk, he asked me, how was church today? All that kind of stuff, right? So he's really open about that. But I want him to come to know Jesus, I want him to come experience life change through the cross of Christ. And I want to be very clear with all of us here that the mission that God has called us on here at Southbridge is not about Southbridge. It's not about Southbridge being all about us. It's not about elevating our leadership. It's solely about one person, and that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we're about. It's not about building anyone's ego. It's not about, hey, let's build a monstrosity building that can hold 10,000 people because our church is awesome. That's not what it's about. It's about getting people to the kingdom because we love them. And so that's what we're about. That's what we're focusing in on. And so I'm asking you, like you've been asked before, to leave the sideline and engage in the very plan that God used to save you. It's the same plan. So we can't be in a place where I'm going to say, man, thank you, God, for the plan to save me, but I'm unwilling to extend that plan to someone else. It doesn't work. And I believe this, that the Raleigh-Durham area will never be able to recover from a group of believers at Southbridge Fellowship living life to glorify God. They'll never be able to recover of the beauty of that. The community will be like, what is different about this church, about these people? As we spread out and go to our workplaces throughout the whole week, we come here to get amped up, to remind it about the gospel of Jesus and how awesome he is. We then are empowered to go live a life of being an incredible witness. You see, what God intends, he empowers. And he empowers you to live a life for him. First point is that God says no because he's saying yes. Second observation I want to make about the text is that the yes takes place after we submit to the no. The yes takes place after we submit to the no. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me of Acts chapter 16. It says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now we see a we here in verse 10. We sought, the we here is actually Luke joining Paul, Silas, and Timothy on the mission. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel account of Luke, and he is a doctor by trade. All right, and so he's joining them in the mission. The, in the vision, it's interesting, they're crying for help. So it's gospel help and maybe physical help there. 
All right, but the reality is, is that it's a team joining together for the sake of Jesus. And Paul is like, this is huge news. Okay, we know where the yes is. We've submitted to the first two no's. It was a no in Asia. It was a no in Bithynia. Okay, so now it's the yes over here. Let's go. Immediately, it says, they went up to set out to Macedonia. Now, this is big news for us because this is Europe. All right, God's saying, I want the gospel to go to Europe, which I think has an effect on us today, doesn't it? The gospel came here through that. And so the reality is it's a big part of God's mission that is going forth here. And what I love about Paul is he's living life on purpose and he's living life in the moment. You don't see Paul saying, God, okay, we're going to go to Macedonia like you said, but if you could give me everything that's going to happen there so I can just be ready, I would really appreciate it. God doesn't work that way, does he? God says, I want you to live in the moment. I want you to go where I want you to go to display my greatness and graciousness, Paul. And whatever happens is going to be for my glory and your good. And we know that Paul has suffered incredibly. Last week we heard that he five times received the 39 lashes that Jesus received. Five times. Five times he was beaten. We know that he's been imprisoned. Macedonia is where the book of Philippi is going to come. We know that he's in prison there. So when he gets there, he's going to go to jail. God doesn't tell him that. We know we already saw back in, uh, I think it was Acts 15 or 13, he was stoned. He had rocks thrown at his head. All for the sake of the gospel. Remember what God said about him in Acts chapter 9? He said, uh, he is my chosen instrument to declare my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, he said in verse 16. So he suffers greatly on the account of Jesus. He was three times beaten with rods. And when I look at Paul, I'm like, I would be like, God, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up to be beaten. I didn't sign up to have rocks thrown at me. What is that all about? Like in worldly standards, Paul's life stinks, doesn't it? We don't go to the Bible and read about Paul's amazing house or his cool possessions. We don't get to learn anything about that. All we learn is that Saul was crazy passionate against the gospel. He then became crazy passionate for the sake of the gospel. So there's a big turning point, a big shift for him. And what was that? Well, the the reality is that he experienced the amazing grace of God and that changed every part of his life. Every part. It totally shifted his passion because he realized that what he was trying to do through Judaism, which was an amazing performance, he actually found already done in Jesus. And so that's what he needs. He's like, man, this is amazing. It's already done. The pressure, the, the heavy burdens are already lifted because God is, God is incredibly kind towards him. Remember who he was, a hater of the gospel. And so often we want, the, we want God to reveal the whole plan to us because we, re, we think that'd be beneficial for us. But the reality is if God reveals the whole plan, it probably robs us of responding in faith, doesn't it? And so he doesn't work that way. And I want you to know that I believe that God is faithful to the nth degree. And so if you're in a position where for you, it's like my marriage is falling apart. I want you to know this, that God is powerful enough to heal that. Maybe you're in a place where it's like my, my teenage son and daughter is running from God. I want you to know that God is greater than that. We can trust him for everything that he ever allows our life to go through. And if I'm Paul, there's times that if I'm, if I'm Paul in his story, if I think if I get hit once with a rod, just one, one time, just one rod, I'm out, right? God, I've done enough. I'm not doing any more for the sake of your name. I'm not going to talk about you. I've served you. I've taken all these mission trips. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm done giving you my time, my talents, my treasures. I've decided as the decider of the plan that it's enough. 
that I've given enough of my time, God, that I've done more than I should do. But that's not Paul's attitude. Why is it? Because Paul realizes that satisfaction is only found in Jesus. And so why is it that he can find himself in a position where he's ready to do what God wants to do all the time? I believe that every day we are faced with this battle that we can do God's plan or we can do our plan. Aren't we? I can do what God wants me to do or I can do what I want to do. And what we do is we think through the pros and cons of that and then we make an educated decision on what we think we should do. I believe if Paul came up here, hey Paul, do you want to do what you want to do or do you, you want to do what God wants you to do? He'd be like, what are you talking about? There's only plan A. It's what God wants, Right? Like, I've been saved, right? So isn't that the only plan there should be? Is that I'm going to do the very thing that God's called me to do? But we like to add our plan in because then in our plan, we get to be the decider. And he's like, that's not how it works. You see, God decided to save me, so I'm going to live my life in response to what it is that he's accomplished for me on the cross. I can remember in my wife's, uh, many of you know, my wife's seven-year battle with cancer, uh, by the age of 27, she went through two bone marrow transplants, had both of her hips replaced, kind of been through uh, the, the whole, everything you could experience medically in the cancer world, she's experienced it. In fact, we go to Duke now, which is considered a pretty great hospital, and even they say we don't, you're outside of our blueprints. You're outside of our plans. There's one week specifically, it was after her second bone marrow transplant. It was the year after to the day she had a test to see if the cancer was gone. And if you make it cancer-free a year after a transplant, it's considered a really big deal. We got the call that she was cancer-free. And I, we were at home. I was, I was like crying and weeping and I was laughing and I was praying. Like every kind of emotion that you could experience in that moment, we experienced. And then God took that moment and turned it upside down. Because it was in that moment that she developed a fever. And anytime she had a fever over 100.5, we had to go to the ER. So we spent many times going to the ER for reasons that I don't know till this day. We get to the ER. Her fever at that point was 104. By the time uh, later that night, it was 108. They got our fever down. And they said, I think we think we have everything under control, but we're going to keep you overnight. And we're going to discharge you in the morning just to make, and I'm monitor you. And I thought, well, that's a good plan. So Steph's mom came up to stay with her. I went home, which is about a 40-minute drive for us. Her mom calls me the next morning and says, you need to come back up to the hospital right now. Steph's no longer able to breathe. And I remember getting up to the hospital thinking, I don't understand what's going on. Like when I left, everything was like really under control. Like she's just going to sleep here and come home the next morning. And I walk in the room and she's on a breathing machine because her body's gone septic. She has an infection circling through all her ports and stuff that they use to give her all her treatments for cancer. Uh, It's just all circling through like this. And I walk in thinking, this is it. It's over. It's done. And I'm like, God, we just wanted a minute to celebrate. Is that too much to ask? Seven years, God, of battling. We asked for just a short, a 24-hour period where we can live life and, and be excited about what you've done and honor you and, and bring you praise. But yeah, you take that and you turn it upside down on itself. How is that fair? And what God impresses upon me is this. Are you going to trust me, Josh? Are you going to trust me that this plan is for my glory and your good? Well, God, I don't see the whole plan. I don't understand how this is going to bring you glory. And you never, you may never understand. We may, we may never actually, actually get that. 
We can look in the Bible of a ton of people that suffered really well. Think about Joseph, about Job, obviously Paul, who we've talked a little bit now. Tim Keller, who's an amazing author and pastor, he has a book called The Reason for God, and one of the chapters in that book is about suffering. And so if you're battling suffering, I would encourage you to pick up that book for this one chapter. This is the only chapter of the book I've read, so I'm just going to confess that to you. He says this, Why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? He says, and we look at the cross of Christ and we still do not know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he's indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he is willing to take it on himself. You see, it's at the cross of Christ that we learn that it can't be that God doesn't love us. It can't be that he's not for us. That's, that's not why we suffer. It can't be that. And we may not know why, but we know what it isn't. It isn't that he isn't for us. And so I want to give you my personal opinion about suffering. I believe that we suffer, and we're going to suffer greatly for the account of Jesus. And we're going to suffer, and God is going to allow suffering to come into our life, because I believe it's his curriculum for every person's, every person's life who's a believer in him to suffer, because the reason that is, is because it forces us to press into him. And here's the reality. If I press into Jesus, isn't it good for me? So he allows suffering to come into our life to force us to press into him. He gets the glory and it results in my good because I'm now officially closer to my Savior. I want everyone to understand this, that God doesn't regret saving you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're currently doing right now, if you're a believer in Jesus, he never regrets saving you. He never ever regrets it. And the reality is is that Jesus knows everything that you are. He knows what you are. He knows every dark secret. He knows every little evil thing that you've ever done. He knows it. He sees it clearly. But yet he still loves you and he still never ever regrets dying for you. Because God made a decision in his plan, not based on what you do, but based on his plan that he loves you deeply and he wants you to know him in an intimate and personal way. And the problem is that we can never forget that. And I believe that it's at the cross of Christ that God's faithfulness is fully seen. It is experienced at the cross. God cannot demonstrate that he's any more faithful to us than when he sent his own son to die for us, can he? The problem is is that we get it all backwards. We say things like this, I can trust God for my salvation, but I can't trust God for my marriage. I can't trust God for the sin issues that I'm battling I believe that I can trust God for every part of my life. And the reason that is, is because he took care of my biggest need, which my biggest need was what? Not cancer. The biggest need was that I was on my way to hell and he did something about it. That I was saved through his work on the cross in my place. It's that story right there, that message that then allows me to say, you know what? In his hands, cancer's nothing. In his hands, a marriage that's on the rocks and things aren't going well is nothing. He can fix that if we press into him. He's unbelievably powerful. He's incredibly faithful. He's the rock that doesn't change. His word is always true. He never ever goes against his word and he never ever regrets saving you. And so what is our response this morning? I believe every day, just to be honest with you, our response should be a response of repentance. 
why is it that I've embraced the truth of Jesus, but yet I still like to be the decider? Why is it that I still want to carry out my plan? And so God's will for your life is that you will submit everything to him. And so maybe it's an opportunity that we need to take this morning and just repent of not giving him control. God, we need to give over the control to you. So what is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind which results in a change of direction. So it's not saying I'm sorry. It's more than that. It's more. It's coming to God saying, God, I've been trying to do my own thing. I've been trying to be the decider. I've not been submitting everything to you. I've not been pressing into you, God. I know when I press into you, it's for your glory and my good. God, I've not been an effective witness for you. I've not been demonstrating, declaring, and, and displaying your greatness and graciousness. So it's, it's a time of repentance for us. And, and so I want you to take um, a moment as we're going to be singing here shortly to do that. And I want you to remember this, that the rock Jesus Christ is the rock and he is faithful to the end. He is faithful to us even when we are faithless. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, Lord. It's the awesome opportunity we have just to gather together as a church family, as a church body on a weekly basis to come and be reminded of your work on the cross for us. Lord, that is the thing that we need to be constantly reminded of because I believe, Lord, that your grace is the motivating factor in how I live my life. Lord, thank you for the freedom that you provide, that I don't have to go out and carry these heavy burdens, but that I get to live life in response to your work for me on the cross. Lord, may we we consider the repentance that needs to take place in our hearts this morning, areas in our life that need to change. Lord, please uh, press those things upon our heart so that we can change the direction that we're currently living our life, so we can live more in a greater communion with you and live life as a greater witness for your name. Lord, we're grateful for you and what you've done for us in your name. Amen.